0: The path doesn't have to be straight. We have a Before lot more
1: information. You can that we your job is to have an to know why Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Path
0: doesn't have to be straight. We have a can lot more
1: information. Return. Return. And your job is to have, have and conviction conviction to know why why Value to courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Hello, everyone.
0: It's time for another great conversation with the WeGraph Boss Babe. We are so glad you're joining us. I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. Please subscribe to the show
2: and leave a quick rating and comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: We had the most incredible conversation with today's guest. She is literally like the real world female Indiana Jones, plus some. (laughs) What do you think, Vanessa?
2: Absolutely. Um, You always say that your daughters use uh, goat and woat. She's definitely the
0: goat. Greatest (laughs) of all time, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. So we're talking data science, but we're also talking a lot about um, conservation and a life of incredible adventure. So uh, absolutely. She brings great awareness to um, you know just
2: poaching and the anti-poaching initiatives that are that are going on and that she's being an active part
0: of. So let's learn about African elephants with the amazing Holly Budge. From being the first woman ever to skydive Mount Everest, to ambushing wildlife poachers on the front line in Africa, and racing semi-wild horses across Mongolia, Holly Budge is no stranger to taking action. Holly is now using data science to help save African elephants, while demonstrating the importance of a positive mindset and backing yourself to make good decisions, especially in times of adversity. She believes we should never underestimate the sheer power of the human mind and body. We can do so much more and go so much further than we think we can. Welcome, Holly. Welcome. Hi there. Thank you. That's a no big deal intro there, right? (laughs) (laughs) We are so excited to have you on WeGraph today. And I really want to get into um, the data science that you're doing to to educate people about the plight of African elephants but before we talk about elephants I want to talk about perfectly good airplanes and why you jumped out of them and sort of all (laughs) the other adventures that you have had on your journey so just tell us what makes you such a badass adventurous woman
3: (laughs) do you know I often get asked why would anyone jump out of perfectly good airplanes and my answer to that is I try and only jump out of perfectly good airplanes (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah, so it all started for me when I was 21. I was traveling uh, around New Zealand and I did a tandem skydive. And that 60 seconds of adrenaline, 60, that 60 seconds of sheer terror completely changed the course of my life. Not only did I want to go straight back up and do it all over again, but I was also blown away that people were getting paid to jump out of perfectly good aeroplanes every day of the year. And I decided there and then that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be employed as a skydiving camera woman. The only problem was I knew nothing about skydiving and I knew nothing about filming. But I didn't let that stop me trying to achieve this this really big, quite far-fetched goal. So I returned to the UK, carried on working in my job in London as a graphic designer, and I saved up enough money to go back to New Zealand, put myself through my skydiving course. And several months later, I achieved my uh, my goal. And I was employed as a skydiving camera woman and getting paid to jump out of aeroplanes up to 10, 12 times a day, every day. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty awesome job, I have to say. And, and you know, for being only 21, um, I, I honestly... I was the richest I've ever been then because it only took three skydives to pay for my month's rent. So, um, Mm. yeah, that was pretty amazing. But the most amazing thing about that whole experience was um, what it taught me. And looking back, I refer to that as the boldness of youth because I didn't overthink things. I didn't uh, procrastinate too much. I, um, you know, as I said earlier, I didn't know anyone in New Zealand, nothing about skydiving or anything about filming. But none of that mattered because I knew I could try and learn those skills. And the key word in that is try. So I've tried to keep that really positive mindset going for the last two decades. I'm now 41. And I sort of look at that like really hanging on to your 21-year-old uh, mindset. Um And that's taken me on some incredible adventures around the world, including Skydiving Everest. You said something
2: so beautiful about the boldness of youth. If we could all just encapsulate that and use that throughout our lives so that we we are fearless, you know, like we could just stretch that fearlessness out.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And not overthinking things, although... Gravity isn't something I have to overthink. <laughs> it just is. So <laughs> kudos to yeah, you. I guess I
3: guess you don't you don't have to throw yourself out of an aeroplane to, to really hang on to that your twenty one year old self. But uh, so yeah, when I had the opportunity to skydive Mount Everest, um, I as a skydiver, that was just simply an opportunity I wasn't going to miss out on. So I rang up the organizer, and he said. Um, great there's no other women on board so I knew that that was my hook for getting the uh, sponsors on board because I just wouldn't be able to have done that without sponsorship and he said can I count you in Holly are you going to be part of the team and I said yeah absolutely and he said that will be 24,000 pounds and I said yeah definitely count me in I didn't have 24,000 pounds but I thought I would do everything I can to find sponsors, to buy into my passion, buy into my vision and uh, to to sponsor me to do that. And that's exactly what happened. It, it wasn't an easy um, journey and it, it never is. Um, but I I did manage to achieve that. And I went on to become the first woman to skydive Everest. So that was a a world first. What is that like? Like when you
0: are... When you see Everest beneath you, just just tell us what that moment was like for you because most of us will probably never have this experience.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest with you, Sue, it was pretty terrifying because the door opened at 29,500 feet. We were in a small aircraft that had never flown to that altitude before. So we didn't even know if we were going to get up to uh, 29,500 feet. The door opened, my camera flyer, climbed out onto the camera step and I moved to the door and I was uh, on oxygen and I'm giving my count, ready, set. And the next thing, my cameraman's hand is on my shoulder trying to push me back into the plane. And unbeknown to me, the pilot had held up a stop sign saying, don't let the jumpers out. But I had too much momentum on my, my go, ready, set, go. And I was kind of backpedalling in the door, and I actually fell out of the aeroplane. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my gosh. So nothing, nothing could have prepared me for that. So when people say how was skydiving Everest, it was it was pretty terrifying, actually. The pilot had held up the stop sign was because it was almost complete cloud cover over the ground. So in the Himalayas, um, or certainly anywhere, I'm sure at that altitude, high altitude, the minute you see the clouds rolling up the valley suddenly within just a few minutes you're totally engulfed in them and um, it was pretty scary until I came through that layer of cloud. Uh, My camera flyer didn't have to follow me, they could have just climbed back into the plane Um, but luckily they did follow me which meant I got some incredible photos and video Um, and then once I came through the clouds Um, that's when I first got a glimpse of the incredible scenery around me. And that's when I realized just just how small and insignificant you are when you're next to these uh, Himalayan giants. But to be honest, I couldn't really look at the view for too long because um, my oxygen mask was obscuring my vision and I had to make it back to this landing area so on two sides of it, there were really steep drop-offs into the valleys below. And aside from this runway, this disused runway, it was it was basically just a grassy strip. Apart from there, there was not really any safe places to land. So it was absolutely imperative to get back, which I did. I managed to get back there. And then about two or three minutes after I landed, those clouds just, it was complete whiteout. I couldn't even see two or three meters in front of me um, and I felt very fortunate to have walked away from that jump about two days later the same thing happened another team of skydivers went up and the pilot same thing don't let them out they'd already got out and um, for them the cloud went all the way to the ground one of them broke um, their femur and their their ankle and the other, another one landed in a yak farm. I'm not sure how well it went for the yak. Oh, um, but, you know, the point is that, you know, weather conditions change up there pretty rapidly. And, um, you know, so it was, I, was, I was definitely, um, I felt very fortunate. And then as soon as I landed, there was a Reuters, the news agency with a microphone. And that was probably the bit of the expedition I was least prepared for was the, the global media. It was on the front page of the Kathmandu Times um, the following day, and I flew home the next day. I got upgraded, thanks to Virgin, Mm -hmm. and then I got put (laughs) in a hotel room for 24 hours, thanks to the BBC, and did six live TV interviews, um, CNN, CBS, and other British news channels. And that really was quite, I just was sort of thrust into the limelight, and I I sort of naively wasn't expecting that. But the expedition raised $300,000 for charity, so it was an incredibly worthwhile expedition.
2: I'm just very happy that we're able to have a conversation about mm, it now. Absolutely. In <laughs>
3: hindsight, it's all good. <laughs> and you also summited uh, Mount
0: Everest as a climber, right? And so yeah. tell us about that.
3: Yeah, so um, just to quickly follow on, on the, from the Skydive Everest expedition, Um, When I got home, life seemed a little bit boring. You know, you put your heart and soul into training and and getting everything organized for these big expeditions. And it's it's a common thing, the post-expedition blues. But luckily for me, it didn't last too long because two weeks after I got home, off the back of Skydive Everest, I got a phone call saying, Hi, Holly, would you like to take part in another World First Adventure? And I said, yes, what is it? And they said it's a thousand kilometer horse race across Mongolia riding semi wild horses. So I, again, got sponsored to do that. And that was a pretty incredible adventure. It took me uh, yeah, nine days and I rode 25 horses in total. Um, But that, again, gave me this massive confidence that if I keep setting myself these big goals and keep really... uh, you know, believing that I can do it and hanging on to that positive mindset, That you know, things I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it definitely uh, started to get momentum. And the more adventures I sort of had on my CV, I was able to get more sponsors and more opportunities started coming my way. So to your question of Everest, um, that was three years ago, I climbed Mount Everest. So when I first laid eyes on Everest, when I skydived it, I knew one day I'd be back to climb it, but I knew nothing about climbing or mountaineering. So I set about learning how to mountaineer and I quickly found myself back in the Himalayas and um, I got several other big mountains under my belt before climbing Everest, which I'm really pleased about because it meant that I turned up with the right skill set. I knew, you know, my own um, capabilities. Um, I met people on Everest that had never stepped foot on snow before which was really terrifying. So um, it was an incredible experience but I have to say I have absolutely no desire to go back to Mount Everest again. (laughs) You've checked that one off your
0: list.
2: I think it's so interesting, you know, when you get that second phone call of like, hey, we have this um, next gig for you. And I'll automatically say yes, questions later.
3: You don't even know what it is. You're like, just sign me
2: up. And what am I doing again? Yes. And then worry Um,
3: about it later. I
2: have some questions. Obviously, you know, after your first epic, I think we can definitely classify as an epic experience. They got a lot of media attention. First woman, skydiver, <laughs> you know, on top of Nile Everest, just kind of hovering. Getting sponsorships after that, I think, is a lot more attainable. How did you go about getting sponsorships based solely off of a passion and an idea of, I'm going to be the first woman to do this?
3: Yeah, certainly for the Skydive Everest, there it was a world first. Um, so that gave me quite a, a good angle, if you like, and um, But absolutely, passion, passion all the way. Passion is contagious. People buy into your passion. And I do a lot of speaking. I go into a lot of schools and and talk to the children. And that's a very strong message that I put across to them that if you do find something you're passionate about, build on that, nurture that, get better at it. Because it really is incredible what you can achieve when you are truly passionate and when you truly believe. In yourself and your own abilities. Um, so, yeah, the Skydive Everest, I was very lucky. That was probably the hardest because I didn't have a track record um, of doing big, big expeditions at that point. On Mount Everest, I had to be a little bit more creative to get a sponsor on board because, you know, many more people climb Everest. Um, and there was no world first or world record that I was going for in that. So I actually got sponsored by an IT company who were trying to promote Wi-Fi in remote places. Oh, that is cool, so I, I actually, that. Uh, That's cool. But what was really funny about that is I lugged this, uh, this modem all the way up to the summit. <laughs> I, got, I got a really strong 3G signal on the summit. <laughs>
2: wow.
3: <laughs> and the reason is the Chinese, I climbed Everest from the north side from Tibet. There's uh, far less people there. It's much colder and there's no helicopter rescue on the north, um, but I definitely didn't want to be standing uh, in, in a queue. Um, I was still found myself standing in a queue on the north side, but but nothing like on the south. I'm sure um, everyone's seen those pictures that went viral of the, the uh, horrendous queues on the south side of Everest. Um, yeah, but the Chinese have put a huge amount of money into these uh, incredible roads that Wind all the way up to base camp. So you drive to base camp 5,000 meters, which is, you know, it's pretty crazy altitude just to drive to. And they'd put mobile phone masks up. <laughs> so it meant you can actually get signal on the summit of Everest which is is a bit of a crack up. really. Can funny. you hear me now?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere on the planet. Yeah. So Holly, at what point of yeah. climbing Everest, what what point was the most difficult? Was there ever a point when you were like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to have to double down on my determination here?
3: So I climbed Everest as a two-man team, which is quite rare. Most people go in, in bigger teams. It was a very difficult year on Everest, very, very small weather windows, and um, really brutal weather so that night um we waited and we arrived at the summit at half one in the day which is really late but we'd planned to do that and we were we had the reward of sitting on the summit of Mount Everest for half an hour Mm. to ourselves which is almost unheard of like that is that's that was an incredible thing and we had a beautiful blue sky so really take the view in um, but we weren't so lucky on the way back down. We got caught in this storm and we had to spend a night at 8,300 metres in in the high camp. Um, and that was a really terrifying night. These winds just got sort of more and more ferocious. And I thought our um, tent, so we would have been the only two in that campsite. We'd probably been the two highest living people on earth at that point and we I just thought the tent was going to get blown clean off the mountain and coming from a skydiving background I just was thinking if I'm in free fall I'm going to know what this feels like but I won't have a parachute on Mm. and then in the morning when we popped our heads out of the the tent I don't think I really got any sleep it was I mean you just can't sleep at that altitude it's incredibly uncomfortable and freezing um and pretty scary really um and then we popped our head out and, and We were one of only three tents left standing. As I said, no one was in those. Um, But everything else had been blown away. And the guys that were in the campsite below us at Camp 2, some of them had actually had their tents ripped off whilst they were in the tents. And they'd lost all their things. That just gives you a sense of how ferocious that storm was. But the thing that I wasn't prepared for... You know, we all know there's dead bodies on Everest. But until you actually step over a dead body, well, certainly for me, I just, that took quite a lot of getting my head around, really. Um, And there was a guy just outside that high camp, an Australian guy who had died the day before. And you had to step over him to get to the high camp. So all I was thinking in my mind was when we go back down and we need to get off this mountain fast, because the storm kept going, kept going. So we clipped on the rope, start moving down and had to climb back over this, this Australian guy. And that was mm. pretty horrible. Um, you know, and I saw several other bodies on the way up to the summit. Um, so, you know, that that was definitely a part of it that, that I found pretty difficult. But I did get quoted the other day for uh, calling my summit push on Everest it was like being in a zombie apocalypse movie and because the reason it being is there's the dead and then there's the near dead so you you see these bodies draped over rocks and things like that and you think they're dead and then they move so this is people that are almost dead but uh and a lot of those people are those people that had never been on snow before and they shouldn't I've been up there. Um, When I chatted to the Sherpas, when I got back down, some of them had to hold their clients up on the summit for the summit photo. They were hiding behind them to support their body um, whilst they were sitting on the, the summit on the ledge. Um, And then they're literally being dragged back down. And it was, that's why I said to you earlier, I have no desire to go back to Everest because I just saw such horrendous things and such incompetencies of of some people um, that, so there's 260 bodies plus on Everest and uh, a huge percentage of that number are um, Sherpas. And that's not generally because they don't have the ability to be there. They were literally dragging people up and down. And I saw some people that were roped to a Sherpa in front and a Sherpa behind and they were unconscious. So it was pretty horrifying. Did Uh, you question your decision at that point? Not at all. I'm so glad you asked that. Not at all. I get asked that a lot. And I I like being asked that question because it goes back to what I said to you earlier about turning up with the right skills and the right skill set and knowing your own capabilities. So if I'd have felt ill If I'd have felt I was out of my depth, I absolutely, 100% would turn around. The summit is not worth becoming another statistic on that mountain. So even though it was upsetting, stepping over the dead, not once did I think, oh, my God, I've seen a dead person. I need to turn around. Um, No way. No, it's all about being prepared, turning up prepared,
2: That's definitely an unnerving experience for sure. And something I think that at least for me, I mean, I hear about it all the time, people not making it. And where do those bodies, I mean, if you're midway and you, and you pass on, I mean, that's where you stay and people are either going up or down and they're worried about surviving. So they're not going to, so yeah, of course there would be the aftermath of that. And I, I've never thought of it that way.
3: Don't get me wrong, there are some people, obviously, that have bad luck or they have a fall or they have an accident, you know, and of course, right. that's just very unlucky. Um, but from what I saw, there was people that definitely shouldn't have been at 8000 metres or above in, in the condition that, that they were in. And some of them were in that condition going up. So you're not you're not right. going to get any better
0: And the life lesson in this for me, as I listen to you, Holly, because again, most of us are probably not going to climb Mount Everest. But when you say, um, be prepared, do your homework, you know, follow your goals, pursue your your dreams, but do the hard work that it's going to take to make those things happen. I think that that's applicable,
3: no matter what kind of goal you have, right? 100%. Absolutely. And people message me and email me saying, I want to climb Mount Everest, how do I go about it? Go and climb other mountains, go and see how do you fare at high altitude. Um, some people just can't deal with the altitude, they just get, get sick, you know, even at sort of five, 6,000 metres. Um, you know, you, you, I mean, we all feel most generally, uh, humans don't feel great when you first arrive at that altitude, but, you know, Certainly a lot of people can acclimatize, but some can't. So go and figure that out. Don't choose Mount Everest as your first mountain because you want to tick that box. It's not worth it. You know, you literally will become a statistic. And in my mind, you know, it's just, why would you put yourself through that?
0: All right. Moving on from Mount Everest, I want to talk with you about, uh, the elephant poachers in Africa and your experience with the Black Mamba. Is that Mambas? Black- yeah, the Black Mambas, yep. yeah. And I want to hear about that because that's another incredible adventure and that is leading towards um, what you're currently working on, which is data science and you know raising awareness about uh, elephants and their plight uh, through your charity, How Many Elephants. But let's start with the elephant poachers and what you did there.
2: Yeah, and also just the transition from... Obviously, doing these types of um, first type of experiences to going into that.
3: So just to rewind that, um, as much as I love adventuring, I found I wanted to go back to my roots of of design and really start using the creative side of my brain again. Um, So seven years ago, I went and studied for a um, master's in sustainable design, and I was actually studying a material called vegetable ivory which is a nut from a palm tree from South America. And it's an incredible material in its own right. It's almost identical in color and texture, though, to elephant ivory. And it was that material similarity that got me researching the African elephant crisis. And I just haven't stopped. So that was seven years ago. And that two years doing my master's just totally expanded my mind um, and i embarked on a on a, another very passionate journey so i wanted to use my design skills to come up with a way of a fresh innovative way of raising awareness of this uh, horrible elephant crisis so few people know that 96 elephants are poached each day in africa for their ivory so that totals 35000 elephants a year. And to put that in perspective, there is under 400,000 elephants left in the world in Africa. So I wanted to use my design skills to come up with a fresh way of raising awareness of the African elephant crisis. So I made this showpiece necklace. It's quite a piece. It's won five design awards so far. And it's 96 elephants cut in vegetable ivory, Um, One elephant is hand cut in brass because the poacher's bullet shells are commonly made from brass. And one elephant is facing the other way to say that this crisis can still be turned around and they're not extinct yet. So what I tell people is I'm using design to bridge the gap between scientific data and human connection. So to actually see and connect with this data on a purely visual level. Is really impactful, but what's equally impactful is my hard-hitting exhibition, which accompanies the necklace, and that is thirty-five thousand elephant silhouettes on a wall. So to actually see thirty-five thousand elephants on a wall is a uh, is quite a sight. But I've purposely avoided using any gruesome or gory images. That was a a really um important point for me from the beginning of setting up the campaign. And now my campaign is a, a UK registered charity called How Many Elephants? And it's just grown arms and legs, really. Um, I've, uh, well, aside from lockdown, uh, my exhibition is, is traveling around the world. It was heading for China this year to Beijing, Shanghai and Hong Kong. And just seeing people's reactions when they, they see this data is incredible. I've had literally people burst into tears. Two Chinese ladies, China being the largest ivory consuming country in the world. And two Chinese ladies came along and when they saw it, they just burst into tears. And when I said, why are you crying? They said, we just had no idea. We just didn't know. It's so deeply ingrained in their beliefs and their traditions. I've met other people that think the ivory tusks fall out and regrow but it's been amazing working with the children too. I've literally had thousands of children come to these exhibitions and do workshops with me. And, you know, I love working with that audience because I I really believe they are the the young actionable change makers of tomorrow. And I think it's a really important audience. Um, And the children then get a color elephant color in, they take it back to their schools and then they have their own exhibitions at school. So down the corridor around the classroom then the parents get involved and it's a brilliant way of keeping the uh, awareness and keeping that message going so that's all available on my website howmanyelephants.org anyone can get involved with this colouring campaign adults as well mindful colouring and um, i'm trying to get hundreds of thousands of elephant artworks from all around the world as a sort of as a real stand and a united voice um, you know, to, to say that this has to stop.
1: Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening.
0: If you could talk about how elephants are a keystone species. I mean, here in the U.S., we don't have elephants, obviously. So we don't know that much about them other than, you know, they're interesting to visit at the zoo, right? But there are actually a keystone species to the environment in Africa. So if you could explain that, that would be helpful, I
3: think. Yeah, no worries. So, yeah, elephants are a keystone species. So the definition of a keystone species is every ecosystem has certain species That are critical to the survival of other species in the system. So, the keystone species um, could be a huge predator or an unassuming plant, but without them, the ecosystem may not survive. So, elephants are a keystone species and they play an indispensable role in the healthy functioning of a larger ecosystem. And the thought of the African sav- savannah devoid of elephants is heartbreaking enough, but emotions aside, losing these important ecosystem engineers will be of extreme detriment to the environment and beyond. So if in- if elephants go extinct, entire ecosystems...
2: I think elephants are beautiful. I I, Mm -hmm. I love, love, love elephants. Um, And, you know, even within the Hispanic culture, they're just good vibes, calming, all the all the positive things. Right. Um, My question comes from, you know, the attackers. Do you see that being more. Um, guerrilla, malicious style uh, groups, or is it also tribes that aren't particularly trying to be malicious? But to your point earlier, it's a cultural thing, and they may use the ivory in
3: in healing. You can split it into two categories. You've got your opportunist poachers who are from the the local villages, who you know possibly might start out putting laying snares, um, which are Um, pieces of wire that they, the way they set them up, it's kind of like a noose and and snares don't discriminate. Any animal that gets caught in a snare, it pulls it tight and then they sort of have a slow and horrible death and then people come and eat them for bushmeat. And I guess it's a very difficult thing, isn't it? When you are, especially now with, with COVID and the lack of tourism, which is a huge um, industry in in sub saharan Africa, um, and a huge amount of people are employed in the tourism industry, and that literally collapsed overnight. So, you've got a huge amount of unemployed people, many of whom are desperate, and there's a huge amount of food insecurity. So, you know there has been an increase in bushmeat poaching not in all places I'll, I'll come back to that with the black mambas the team that we spoke about earlier but certainly in some places there's there's been an increase in that um and without tourists there there's no there's very few eyes and ears on the ground so poachers are able to act with with impunity without feeling uh, so threatened that they're going to be caught so that's kind of one aspect of it is is the opportunists Um, and then you have the crime syndicates um, and that's a whole different ballgame these are very powerful uh, criminal networks Um, so the illegal wildlife trade is the fourth largest transnational organized crime in the world it's up there with narcotics guns and human traffic trafficking and revenues upward of 200 billion dollars a year are generated from the illegal wildlife trade um, with the ivory trade accounting for around four billion dollars of that so it's a relatively low risk way of criminals earning a huge amount of money and besides driving many endangered species towards extinction the illegal wildlife trade strength strengthens criminal networks and undermines national security so that is a huge problem and that's a a much harder problem i would say to uh to be dealing with certainly with the uh, opportunist poachers um you know like the black members this all-female team in south africa um they patrol different patrols every single day morning and night and they're really in their words disrupting the landscape they're making it a um, as insecure and, and as dangerous as possible or as unpredictable as possible I should say for the poachers but certainly when you're dealing with the big criminal networks they're very sophisticated um, these guys some of them can take an elephant down with one shot to the head which requires incredible skill and there's obviously uh you know they're not just uh with their on off shotguns and, and silencers. there's there's more sophisticated equipment right up to uh, night vision goggles and uh, more sophisticated weapons where the elephants, you know, you just don't have a chance. I almost have more respect for the poacher that takes an elephant down with a spear than someone mm-hmm. with night vision goggles and an AK-47. I mean, these animals just don't have a chance.
0: Wow. And you are actually on the ground with the Black Mambas right and tell
3: us about that. Yeah so to, to just scoop back to my adventuring um I really for many years wasn't sure how to combine my adventures with my passion for conservation and my charity work but now my adventures have become a platform to raise money for my charity so to date I've raised over 400,000 pounds and what I decided at 41 is I'm not really interested in in world records or world firsts. So I know that's easy for me to say now because been there, done that. But now it's very much about adventuring with purpose. So what I mean by that is um, it, it's all conservation focused because that's what my passion is. Um, so I've been incredibly privileged. And when I say privileged, I feel I've earned that privilege because I've I spent the last seven years of my life campaigning and advocating the work of these female rangers, but certainly the Black Mambas. But last year I got a very rare privilege of spending time on the front line with a team in an all female team in Zimbabwe called Akashinga. You might have heard of them because the National Geographic film has just been launched um, on them, and these women are fully armed. And I can tell you now that took me way out of my, beyond, beyond my comfort zone. And, and it was beyond adventure. It was, we were in the middle of nowhere, no tourists anywhere near us. Um, I was the only one that was unarmed. Um, we were out on overnight patrol um, and it was just a whole different ball game. So you've got the wild animals, you've got your herds of elephants and lions, etc., you know and then signs of poachers as well and it was seriously it was like being a uh, a war correspondent that's how i felt um and it you know the the adventure if you want to call it an adventure it was very real and um you know just sitting in the pitch darkness uh look, it's trying to spot poachers torchlights etc and i just it just really brought it home to me that these women were my total lifeline like I barely knew these women and obviously me being me, you know, middle-class white woman out in the bush. I stand out. I'm not sure your class matters actually in the bush, just the white skin. We'll go with that. <laughs> just stood out an absolute mile. And um, these rangers said, oh, can you put our uniform on? Because you might blend in a little bit better. But to be honest, like, you know, I've been told since the animals and and the uh the poachers and any bushman would be able to to smell you a mile away. They said even like the shampoo that you use or the the body wash or anything, you just smell different and you pick up your scent a mile off. So I'm not sure what's more scary now is being out with unarmed rangers. They just have pepper spray and handcuffs. Um, And as I said earlier, they patrol the fence lines and look, look for incursions and checking and dismantling snares. So they're two very different models. The black mambas, the unarmed women, they're not designed to come in contact with the poachers. That's not, that's not the goal. Whereas well, the Akashinga women will go face to face with them and, and do, you know, they do arrest them. Um, but the black mambas, it's, it's very, uh, a very conscious decision that they are unarmed. And the reason that they're unarmed is they said, it's a bit like in the in the Western world, they're the the policemen patrolling the streets. They're the eyes and the ears. They're saying, "We're here, you know, we're here." The poachers. Because you have to remember also that you know, there's a high chance some of the poachers are from these women's communities. It's a high chance they know the poachers. Being able to have twenty four seven, day in day out, with these women was almost unheard of. Like when I got home, I had film crews ringing me up saying, how how on earth did, did you manage that? And to be honest, I'm not sure how I managed that. They're not only working on the front line of conservation, they are educators, they're role models, they're beacons of hope in their communities and beyond. And they're really changing the, the attitudes towards the role of women in Africa and beyond. But the thing that struck me with both of these teams um akashinga and black ma- the black members was the camaraderie and the pride with which they wore these uniforms so these women are from extremely poor communities and just the the grit and the determination and the passion in these women was was truly humbling so holly in
2: your research then we obviously know we have a huge issue here and there's a lot of work to be done You've, you've found this potential alternative, the you know, vegetable ivory as a substitute for elephant ivory. What type of awareness is being brought to that in these communities?
1: Yeah,
3: so, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I started off saying vegetable ivory could be a sustainable alternative to elephant ivory, but I very quickly came back out of that and, and backtracked out of that space when I was doing my masters. And the reason being is if for example China said, okay, we love vegetable ivory and then started uh going over to the Amazon rainforests, etc., and and sort of pillaging the the rainforest for this material, that then presents a whole new set of problems. Mm, yes. So I did did mm-hmm. come out of that. So now I I definitely am not saying that uh vegetable ivory should in any way be a substitute for for that and it's not the magic answer by any means so I'm just using vegetable ivory to raise awareness and I actually do get quite a lot of people come up to me when they see this necklace and say wow is that elephant ivory and it's like no it's most definitely not (laughs) elephant ivory (laughs) I had one lady come to one of my exhibitions a a little old lady and it was you know, it was quite a funny story. She said, Oh, I've worn my favorite elephant necklace, especially to come to your elephant exhibition. And of course, it was elephant ivory. Oops. <laughs>
2: and you bring up a great point. Yeah. You don't want to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bring education and awareness yeah. to one thing, and say we need to stop it, and then cause another issue yeah. elsewhere. Right. With another type of ecosystem, Absolutely. right? However, However, there is something to be said for, you know, whether or not you could potentially grow this yourself and have like farms of this potential vegetable ivory. There's obviously
0: the syndicated crime poaching, which is one thing. But there's also to go back, you know, circle back to earlier when you said there's communities that rely on ivory, rely on ivory to make a living. So could they grow vegetable ivory? I mean, is that
3: possible in that climate? The one I use is from South America. In Africa, you can get a similar nut um, to vegetable ivory, but I actually did some tests with that and it it went moldy. This vegetable ivory I use from South America is the only one that I could get to not go rotten. The trouble with them producing ivory lookalikes is that just opens up this whole loophole for real ivory to be filtered in to that system. And that's what's happening already. I mean, you know, certainly uh, in the antiques market, you know, if it's pre-1960s, it's okay. But of course, now new ivory is coming in, being made to look like vintage ivory, and, and suddenly the... The system is completely flawed. So it's
0: really a two-sided problem here because you've got one, on the one hand, you need to eliminate the demand for ivory, right, around the world. And then you also, secondly, need to substitute something for that livelihood in these African communities that are very poor and that are relying on that. So how do you address that problem? And what can we do here in the U.S.? Because again, um, we're not a real, I don't think, ivory-consuming country or a country maybe that recognizes that this is such a huge problem I, and I could be wrong you know, you feel free to correct me but what can we do?
3: Certainly in the, the hunting community in America I know that ivory is inlaid into you know the the gun hmm. um, stocks and and into um, pen knives and things like that. The most important thing to, to really have the buy-in of the communities and that really have them on board that they want to conserve The wildlife. Um, And a lot of what these ranger, the Black Mambas and Akashinga are doing is they go into the the local schools and they run educational programs. So the Black Mambas have over 1,200 children in the schools on their program called the Bush Babies. And that's going in and saying, look, there are different ways. You don't have to be a poacher or you don't want to be a poacher. But that's also made very difficult when you see sort of quite young people driving around in fancy cars, etc. The one thing that really shocked me was that a lot of the communities don't love elephants, very much the total opposite. And the question that I get thrown at me a lot over there is, but you don't live with elephants. And no, I don't live with elephants. So if you're that farmer with your crops and the elephants are raiding your crops all the time, You know, I'm sure you are going to get pretty annoyed with that. But it was the it was the real hate, hatred towards these animals. They just a lot of the uh, community see not all, but definitely some that I've visited see elephants as giant vermin or sources of protein. So it's about trying to change that attitude. Um, Yeah. But that is an incredibly difficult thing, isn't it? Especially going back to being a white sort of Western female. It's like, well, who the hell are you to come in and be telling us? Because you're not here living with these animals destroying our livelihoods. So it's it's incredibly multifaceted. Um, But there are some fantastic schemes that are going that I've visited. So the beehive fences, elephants are scared of bees. So that they put the beehives on the, the fences and then the communities tend to the bees and, and have the honey to sell and to consume. And the same with chilies. Elephants don't like chilies. So there's chili farms, same deal. Very difficult situation, incredibly difficult. But as I've said a few times, without the community buying, then it's 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 almost, you know, it's it, it has to be like that. The communities have to buy into it
2: then it does go back again to your point education and also really just um you know bringing awareness to how how these animals affect the ecosystem and if if they go down then everything else is a domino effect
3: but the the hardest thing is you know with the population just growing at such a, a rapid rate you know the elephants and lots of the other animals are, are losing their habitats. So that's where the the human wildlife conflict uh, often occurs because the elephants, you know, have long memories and it's it's kind of hardwired into them and they'll still think that they'll go on a on a path to a watering hole and turns out there's a whole town now built on that historic uh, pathway that they would have followed. So the elephants still trying to move through through those pathways. Um, so it's. I think it's so important and I'm involved with uh, several projects where we really are trying to set up or preserve both corridors for these animals. Because the, the, these, these animals don't know borders. They don't have borders. You know, they, they roam, you know, they have their places.
2: I'm curious with with your research. And obviously having, you know, bring technology into this conversation a little bit more um, with this problem that you've outlined, is there something or a device w- or an eco, a, a technological e- ecosystem that can be put into place to help these animals potentially find a different path where they're not encroaching on, you know, what used to be their home, <laughs> um, but now humans have infiltrated that they can find a different place? Or what what types of things in the realm of, um, you know, data collection or technology can be applied in this scenario?
3: You know, it's definitely starting to happen, and, and the use of drones and, and other... Um, you know, uh, heat heat detection and things like that. Technology is definitely out there. But I think these big tech companies need to get way more on board. So if you're a tech company
0: listening to this yeah. podcast, get in Absolutely. touch with Holly Budge. And also, Holly, you know, speaking to the technology aspect of this, I, I just want to point out that you are a designer and you're using data science in ways that are super impactful. I mean, here we are talking about what goes on in the African bush, right? And people, you know, especially younger people who maybe are listening, students who are listening to this podcast may not think, oh, I could have a data science background or a design background and actually have real impact on the conservation
3: endeavor. Absolutely, definitely. And I think also, you know, in this this modern world, that we're in, you know, you can have, you can be so multifaceted. I think you have to be in your skill set. So for me, using adventure, using design, and using conservation, and bringing those things together um, is working. You know, it's it's we're making, i making an impact on the ground. Just figuring out how how can you combine those skills. You don't have to be set in in one uh, skill set. It's, it's it's definitely a combining and merging skills. Is huge.
0: Yes. Great, great advice. Mm -hmm. Is there other advice that you would give to young women who are listening to this episode? Absolutely. Young and older women, (laughs) because we all want to learn and improve throughout. Yeah, my my,
3: my motto is um, think big, dream bigger. And and that's it. In those four words, you just got to go for it. You got to go for it. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Do we have time for a lightning round? I think we do, just by the name.
2: I would say, are you ready? But... Yeah, I'm ready.
0: <laughs> All right, Holly, I'll start us off. What profession other than your current one would you like to attempt?
3: Um, ooh, there's a question. Firefighter.
0: Mm. Huh. Mm.
2: I could see that. I could totally see that. <laughs> How do you define success?
3: Doing something that's bigger than you. Mm. Love that. And one. having an impact that's bigger than yourself and a purpose that's bigger than you. When you are
0: having a bad day, what cheers you up?
3: Um, What cheers me up? uh, Just being super grateful for what, you know, just grateful for everything that's good that's going on and just trying to keep reminding myself. um, And just, you know, positive mindset. I know it's easier said, but we are on a lightning round of questions, so I'm going to keep it short. But um, certainly focusing on, on the the good things that are going on in your life and it's incredible even you know in bad situations that you can find a good thing
0: and you know I've found a lot of times in life that really good things can come out of bad things and out of challenges and some of your best growth comes from the most difficult things so uh, not always yeah 100% agree with that
2: Holly, this next question I think was, like, made for you because you're probably the only person ever that this would apply to and could potentially happen. So you're you're on a deserted island. What three things would you bring with you?
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to laugh at my answer to this. Um, <laughs> I, I can definitely say two things straight off the, the cuff, and that's um, a pen and a notebook. I don't get anywhere without a pen and paper. Any ideas, anything gets written down. Everything gets written down. Um, So if I'm waiting anywhere, rather than pull out my phone, I'll pull out my my notepad and my my pen. And it sounds silly, but I do feel a little bit lost if I haven't got a pen and and paper on me. So third thing, uh, maybe a beer. (laughs) with <laughs> some light relief
1: that is so appropriate i love it yeah.
3: and i love i love
0: the pen and paper too because you know for all that we're about technology yeah. sometimes it's the basics that still work the absolutely
3: best. yeah definitely what is one thing that you wish you were better at i mean there's lots of things i i wish i was better at it's, i'm gonna say time organization yeah i'm there with you yeah okay. yeah definitely that just bugs me that you know but then as I'm sure you you, you know as well when you're, you're passionate and you're just running with it and going with it you know you just sort of wish there were more hours in the day but then I think I should work smarter than longer so I'm trying to work on that
2: you've been to a lot of exotic places what's the weirdest food you've ever eaten
3: Ah, oh, I can answer that one straight away a, a marmot a what a, a marmot mar- Okay. Marmot. A marmot it's um explanation yeah it's like a it's so like a giant it. rat and in oh. mongolia it's a delicacy and they the way they cook it is quite fascinating they um they use blow torches and they blow torch it and it sort of swells up like a football and then they scrape all the hair off with a knife and then they cut it open when they think it's cooked. And they, no, none of the other Westerners that I was with would touch it. And they said to, to me, look, you can eat this bit, but you can't eat that bit. Because if you eat that bit, you'll get really sick. And that bit was about a centimetre from the bit that I could eat. So oh. I thought, I'll give it a go. Probably not the best idea, given that I was doing 13 hours a day in a saddle. Not the best place to be sick or stomach sick. Um, it just tasted like chicken. i'm just thinking
2: what kind of sauces do they have that you can just kind of like bury it in and then just just (laughs) we were
3: literally out in the middle of nowhere in this yurt and um yeah they just they didn't have uh any ketchup or anything like that it was just and they said also what which one's your favorite goat and i was like oh that one over there and then they just bang killed that goat and that was that was the main course oh
0: gosh yeah. well at least it was quick at least killing. it was quick
3: yeah. so and you know the, the meat was fresh but yeah poor goat
0: <laughs> oh, there's a case for vegetarianism
3: right there yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> roasted marmot yeah oh, and it goodness. was quick i'm sure okay. it's better than than uh, you know many other animal deaths <laughs> yeah.
0: okay Holly on to a lighter subject what is your favorite song from your teenage years that you still rock out to when no one's listening or around
3: I'm pretty terrible with music because I just I kind of rock out to all sorts of different music right from you know Elvis and the old school through to Hotel California that was definitely an oh, yeah. old mm-hmm. rock out song <laughs>
2: So I'm going to, I'm going to, so these are some new questions we're playing with. So thank you for being guinea pig on this. Um, So I'm going to ask this question, but also have a follow-up question to it. So first part A is what celebrity do you shamelessly follow in the news? And part B is what celebrity would you choose to play you in your like biopic?
3: So David Attenborough, absolute legend and hero who I want to meet. Um, he's ninety-four now, so I'm desperately trying to find ways to to meet with him. What was part B of that?
2: If some, if we were making a movie, a biopic on you, who would play you?
3: Do you know someone asked me that not long ago, and uh, I forget now who I came up with. Knowing me, I'd play me. Ah, okay. I, would. I believe yeah, you. Would. Especially <laughs> if there was like stunts and things like that, I just wouldn't want a stunt double. I'd be like nowhere. That's I'm me. doing
2: my own stance for sure.
3: Absolutely. I love so that. Um, Yeah. That is cool. I think, I I think I'll play myself. <laughs> I'll play me.
0: <laughs> there, that goes back to the the career that you can attempt, right? <laughs> 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 that you haven't had yet. Okay. What is something about you that people would be surprised to know?
3: Um, that all my life I've suffered from um, terrible night nightmares. Like i I I don't sleepwalk I literally night run like naught to 60 in three seconds so I can't sleep in bunk beds because I fall out um I can't sleep on mezzanine floors or anything I can't sleep high up if it's open because I will fall fall down
2: okay excuse me Holly you slept on Mount Everest (laughs) so wait a second I have had times
3: (laughs) where I've had to tie myself to other people
0: wow oh my yeah.
2: goodness
3: and my mum it's a real worry there's this one campsite so if you google amadablam so that's a-m-a-d-a-b-l-a-m and that's a mountain next to mount everest and i led an expedition on amadablam and if you google amadablam camp 2 there's a trip advisor site for this campsite it's the most crazy campsite in the world and my mum totally freaked out when she saw this and it's a 6,000 meters and it's literally like a a bird's nest with four tents on the top and then just sheer drops um so yeah I have had to tie myself to people before to to fully anchor yeah it is a worry it's a concern and I don't like (laughs) staying at people's houses because I have been known to I mean I'm I'm quite destructive in my sleep I will like climb your walls and break pictures and my brain doesn't stop I can't turn my brain off
0: I was going to say those are some good friends that they let you tether (laughs) to them when they're trying to get a good night's sleep.
3: Extreme sport. Like we joke, but it is an extreme sport sleeping next to me. Like I could literally, you know, just I'm crazy in my sleep.
0: What's an adventure you haven't had yet that you just, it's on your bucket list. It's not, it's part of our lightning round, but I would love to know what is on your bucket list.
3: Um, I want to hike the great wall of China in its entirety. Um, I say in its entirety, it has so many offshoots, that's not possible. But the, the it's 3,000 miles, the route that I want to do. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to carry out research into how does elephant ivory fit into their culture, into their deep-rooted traditions and beliefs. Um, and I want to do that with the Sherpa that I climbed Everest with.
0: Hmm. Very Samuel. cool. Holly, you and I have something in common because I actually have hiked the Great Wall. I hiked three miles, <laughs> not 3,000. Yep. So we only have a small amount yep. in common there. <laughs> but yeah, a remote section of the Great Wall of China. And it is the most incredible feeling to be like, there's nothing else around you. And it's just the wind and the birds and these crumbling down, yep. you know, parts of the wall. Amazing. What living creature most creeps you out? Rats.
2: You ate a rat
3: thing. (laughs) It was a a big rat that didn't look like a rat. And Rats totally freaked me out. And I I, I have that in common with Sir David Attenborough, because somebody asked him what animal you know can you just you just despise, and he was like the rat.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I just can't get my head around it. It just freaks me out. And you know, staying in a lot of places I've stayed, there are rats, and it's just. It totally freaks me out. (laughs) I'm kind of okay with mice. That freaks me out a little bit. But rats, it's just, yeah, can't deal with it.
2: All right. My next question was, um, to finish this sentence, women are? Awesome
3: and unstoppable.
0: I love that. Indeed. Mm. Oh, gosh, Holly, this has been amazing. You are so inspiring. I mean, you're awesome. But you're also awe-inspiring because you believe that we can do anything we set our minds to and you walk the walk. You don't just go out there and give a big pep talk. You actually prove it in your day-to-day life and you are making a real impact on a very, very important issue with your efforts. And that is, of course, the African elephant. So how can folks find out more about how many elephants and more about you
3: and get involved in your mission? Yeah, Um so, thank you for your, your kind words. Um, so, you can find out more about the campaign on social media at How Many Elephants um, or at How Many LEs on Twitter. Um, and the website's howmanyelephants.org, and my website is hollybudge.com. And there's loads of ways that you can get involved with the campaign, including uh, we've just launched a volunteer program. And I'm totally overwhelmed by the response that we've received so far of people out there that have uh, time and skills or not even a huge amount of time. Some of the volunteers have full time jobs, but they just have passion and skills and they want to help. So if if you're sitting there thinking, how can I get involved? I want to do something, but I'm not sure what. Absolutely. Get in touch with us. Um, you can help by making a donation. Also, um, all of the money that uh, we raise uh, goes to our um, anti-poaching initiatives, partner initiatives on the ground in Africa. And as a small charity, it's, it's a really important part of the charity that we know where every penny we raise is being spent. Um, so it's not sort of throwing money into a big black hole and wondering where it's going. Um, we're, we're very open and transparent about that. Um, so yeah, have a look on the website, um, color in an elephant, uh, well, color in an elephant's one end of the scale, come on board as a volunteer, um, or a donor is, is the other end of that scale. We'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Thank
2: you so, so so much, Holly. Again, you're a true badass and inspiration (laughs) and thank you for all of the, the knowledge and, um, you know, awareness on poaching and elephant conservation because it's very very important
0: absolutely
3: yeah and thank thank you to both of you too a for inviting me on to, to your podcast and b for you know for doing this as well i mean you guys are you know spending your your time um to to really try and make a difference as well so that's really good thank you thank you
2: Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast.
0: We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. And we want to give a special thanks to Florence Lumsden, our associate producer for the We Get Real AF podcast. You can find Flo on LinkedIn at Florence Lumsden, L-U-M-S-D-E-N, or at her website, danceandflowproductions.com. That's D-A-N-C-I-N-F-L-O Productions.
2: We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.